So, Jay, both the Earth-616 and the Age of Apocalypse versions of Hank McCoy turned themselves furry with science, right? That's right. He is a consistent guy. So is that a multiversal constant? Largely, but there are some significant exceptions. The color has varied from universe to universe, and on Earth-11113, he's still human-looking and goes by Mr. Farrell. Oh, and of course, the time-displaced teen beast ended up gray with horns. Because of the time travel? Because of the demon sorcery. He was ensorcelled by a demon? No, he messed around irresponsibly with demon sorcery in much the same way that his counterparts had messed around irresponsibly with science. That seems like a weird route for Hank to take. I mean, he's such a science guy. Well, he had help. From whom? First Doctor Strange. Okay. And then Madeline Pryor. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 328 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome, as you might imagine based on that cold open, to a whole bunch of stuff about Beast. More than one Beast, even. It's true. It's a beastly episode. Beasts, beasts, beasts. Wait a minute, you're referencing something that I love, but I can't remember what. I can't either. I, I just remember something that involved a small child chanting beasts, beasts, beasts. It might be a Francesca Leo Block novel. That sounds right, yeah. Anyway, uh, we've only got two of them, but we should probably catch up on what the two of them have been doing because we haven't been spending much time with them lately. So, first of all, there's there's main beast. There's Beast of Earth 616. What's What's his deal these days? Well, he's been a member of the X-Men for quite a while, transitioning back and forth between a more superheroic role and a more research-oriented role. And there's a lot of research to be done because, thanks to a bunch of really complicated stuff at the end of Executioner's Song, the legacy virus has been unleashed on the world. Well, damn. It's unfortunate, because the legacy virus, which narratively is sort of an AIDS allegory, within the plot itself, has been killing quite a few mutants, or at least a small handful of significant mutants that we've already met. But either way, it's not great, and it threatens to kill a lot more mutants, and potentially even humans. Generally indifferent is the beast from the Age of Apocalypse, and otherwise known as Dark Beast, which is what we'll be referring to him as for purposes of disambiguation today. And... In addition to not giving a fuck about the legacy virus, Dark Beast is doing his best to fly under the radar of Earth-616's Mr. Sinister, who was his boss, or rather, uh, whose Age of Apocalypse version was his boss back in the Age of Apocalypse. Because at the end of the Age of Apocalypse, Dark Beast, and also the Sugar Man, hopped into a crystal and ended up in our universe, where they've apparently been for 20 years. They not only shifted dimensions, but they also shifted time periods into the past. They're responsible for a lot of Genosha's problems. And a lot of the Morlocks' problems. And just a lot of problems in general. They're both big jerks. They're problematic in every sense of the term. We remember these two characters, but another person who might very well remember them is... Bishop of the X-Men. That's right. Instead of just existing as his Age of Apocalypse counterpart during the Age of Apocalypse, Bishop's normal consciousness, which as we know is from another future altogether, and his body were, were physically moved over there, and when the Age of Apocalypse ended, he retained a lot of his memories. Which means he also retained a great deal of trauma. And since nobody else remembers the Age of Apocalypse, well, except for Dark Beast, the Sugar Man, Holocaust, and Nate Gray, anyway, nobody Bishop is talking to remembers the Age of Apocalypse, so he's really not sure how to handle what appear to be these delusional memories of a world that never existed. Yeah. Now, luckily for Bishop, there are two other members of the X-Men who've gone through something pretty similar. Those are Scott and Jean, and they, as you may recall, got pulled into the future during their honeymoon to raise Cable, or the kid who would grow up into Cable, for 12 years before being popped back into their original bodies and timeline. Because comics. So that brings us to X-Men 48, Five Card Studs. 
This issue is written by Scott Lobdell, penciled by Luke Ross, inked by Andy Lanning, colored by Steve Buccolato and Electric Cran, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. And contrary to what its title may lead you to believe, it is not gay porn starring Gambit. I mean, read between the lines. Isn't any issue co-starring Gambit, if you look at it the right way, at least somewhat gay porn? That dude is bi as hell. I mean, I feel like... To categorize it as porn, it would need to be fairly explicit. Like, it can it can be a lot of things, but I think for it to be pornography requires it fundamentally to be textual. I suppose so. Okay, well, the director's cut of this issue, he is just popping open that trench coat and flashing people left and right. Here's the real question. Does it have redeeming social importance? <laughs> I can't describe a Gambit story, but I know it when I see it. The rest of you can Google that later. Anyway, the X-Men are known for a number of things. One of them apparently is subtextual porn. Another of them is getting together and playing baseball. And baseball's not what they're doing now, nor is porn for that matter. Instead, they're playing poker. What? This must be a crossover. Poker belongs with the Fantastic Four. Exactly. And I looked this up, and this was surprisingly more complex continuity-wise than I was expecting. Oh yeah, Ben Grimm's poker game is a whole thing. It's officially called the Floating Superhero Poker Game, and it has its own Marvel database entry. We should clarify, floating in this case doesn't mean, like, floating in the sky, it just means the location changes. Wasn't Galactus there once? I don't remember Galactus being there. Uh, I do know that at one point in Spectacular Spider-Man number 21, which is a great issue that I'd actually read before on my own, uh, they're having a poker game, Kingpin ends up crashing it, and Spider-Man ends up beating Kingpin at poker, and, like, Kingpin's surprisingly cool about it. It's a great issue. I mean, there are rules to poker games. Exactly. I also really like the one we got kind of recently in Captain Marvel Volume 10, yes, 10, number 17, which was Captain Marvel, a bunch of her female friends, and also Logan, and it was genuinely hilarious. Most of these poker games, but not all of them, are interrupted by various supervillain crises. Wait, can it still be the floating game if Ben's not there? That's a good question. I don't know. I feel like... It would have Ben's blessing just because he's such a big poker fan. Also, maybe he got it out of his system having to be there every time, the time he threw a gigantic, gigantic superhero poker game to celebrate the bar mitzvah that he had as an adult. Uh-huh. I mean, I know we don't really talk about the Fantastic Four much, but I have such affection for all of those characters, possibly Ben Grimm most of all. Oh yeah, no, the Fantastic Four is wonderful. Like, there's there there are multiple reasons that that, that um Marvel's um, Marvel Cyclops issue is, is basically a Fantastic Four issue. Legit, yeah. Well, we have the thing here, like you mentioned, Jay. We also have Beast, Storm, Gambit, and Iceman. And one more character. That is the absolutely starstruck Cannonball, who, apparently unfamiliar with poker, is is so generally impressed that he's standing behind Hank McCoy and just wide-eyed, calling out his hand. Okay, this annoyed the crap out of me when I first read it, because I'd forgotten where the issue goes, and this just seemed to be tapping into a trope that is very much a pet peeve of mine, which is former grizzled X-Force leader, New Mutants leader, and general badass cannonball just turning into a little kid and Appalachian stereotype whenever he's around the X-Men. Fortunately, what this actually was was, you know, grizzled competent leader cannonball hustling the shit out of the other X-Men at poker. In fact, uh, once... Once Beast taps out in a huff and Cannonball has has tagged in to excitedly proceed to, uh, quote-unquote, beginner's luck win the next few hands, he finally admits, What else was my nine brothers and sisters supposed to do during those long Kentucky winters? Right on. One of the things I am perpetually frustrated about and sort of jealous of is my grandfather taught my cousins how to, how to bet at poker, or at least one of them, and didn't teach me. And I realized that they lived way closer, so they saw him way more, so it was probably like a time and availability thing, but still. Oh, damn. Uh, I know how to bet at poker, but I'm very bad at it. I am not a strategic thinker. Yeah, you're kind of an open book. It's true. It's true. You're like, you're like one of those Harry Potter books that's not only open, but yells its contents. Yelling is great! The game is eventually down to Cannonball and Gambit. And as is often the case in fiction, the big climactic round ends with ridiculously good hands. Cannonball lays down a full house. And Gambit lays down the first four cards of what appear to be a royal flush, and then blows up the poker table. 
as we learn, he actually did have a royal flush. He the the last charged card he had was the ace. Yeah, like Storm picks up what's left of it. Okay, I was thinking this doesn't make any goddamn sense. I mean, Gambit does like to win, and if he, if he can win fairly, I feel like he would like it even more. I don't know if he would, but he also enjoys or at least indulges in self-sabotage a lot. Oh, that's a really good point. But even on top of that, I did come up with an explanation, or at least a parallel. If you remember Gambit and the Externals, the book he was in in the Age of Apocalypse, one of the issues does climactically end with him ripping a bunch of wires and circuitry out of the control panel of the spaceship that he is on in space, just to make a point. That's self and vehicular sabotage. I think we've established by this point that Remy LeBeau has some of the worst judgment in the entire Marvel Universe. Oh yeah, he's he's way, way, way up there. It's not just him, though, because I don't think we mentioned, but this poker game is taking place in Angel's apartment while Angel is watching over the wounded Psylocke, his, his romantic partner. Angel's been around the X-Men for a long time. Like, why does he let any of them hang out anywhere near any of his stuff? I mean, he was on the Defenders for a while. They were maybe even worse. Miles, Miles, rich people aren't like us. True. Sometimes they have wings and fly shirtless through airports. If they wreck his place, he can just get a new one or something. My house is dirty. Buy me a new one. Yeah, basically. Outside of all of this revelry and random explosiveness, Bishop is talking about the dark dreams and memories he's been having. These dreams of an older version of himself being hunted in this dark dystopian world by what he doesn't recognize because his memories are scrambled, but we the readers recognize as the silhouette of Alex Summers, Havoc, who of course was one of the bad guys in Age of Apocalypse. What this is building up to is an arc where Havoc is ostensibly going to become a villain again, but then turn out to have been brainwashed or kind of brainwashed or possibly faking being brainwashed to some other end. It's not a very good arc. It's not my favorite. It's okay. At least after that, he gets to go to Mutant X and hang out with Bloodstorm. Okay, I love Mutant X. Don't talk shit about Mutant X. I'm just talking awesomeness about Bloodstorm. Bloodstorm. It's a storm, but like, of blood. Now, as we mentioned earlier, Bishop's found the folks he can confide in who will, who will get where he's coming from. Those are Scott and Jean because they spent 12 years um, in the adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix hanging out in a future. And he asks them how they got over their own temporal disorientation, to which Jean responds, Partially, no doubt, through the psionic rapport we share, but also by doing just what you're doing now, by talking it through with people who care. And she holds his hand as she comforts him, and holy crap, his hands are gigantic compared to hers. Like, they are seriously literally twice the size. Did John Romita Jr. just leave a permanent mark on Bishop that he must always be large and rectangular? No, this is basically standard sexual dimorphism in 90s comics. I guess so. I mean, jeez, it's like World of Warcraft in here. Dude, have you seen the Wolverine and the X-Men cartoon? I have. Wolverine's shoulders are as wide as some of those female characters are tall. Yeah. He could just he could just swallow them one at a time. Oh, there goes Rogue. There goes Mystique. There goes Storm. Except her hair, because her hair's pretty big. So I guess he'd choke on her hair. This is getting weird. Just cough it up as a hairball. That sounds right. That just makes me think of those Kate Beaton comics that have Wolverine as basically being a misbehaving house cat in the Xavier Institute. Let's be fair. That's basically X-Men, too. <laughs> Legit. I really do like, though, that Bishop is confiding in not Scott, not Jean, but them as a couple. Like, I don't know if you find this to be the case, Jay, but I actually really appreciate when I have friends that are couples that are sort of collectively friends with me. Like, there's there's a special kind of comfort in that, I think. Yeah, you can be the big spoon and the little spoon, like, metaphorically. Or I guess literally if it's that kind of friendship. Or unless you're literally spoons. Or both. Yeah. Well, we have encountered a number of X-Men tropes over the years, and one of them is that anytime anything important is happening, some jackass has to be watching the situation through a bunch of computer monitors. And today, that jackass is none other than Dark Beast. I'm not really sure why all the monitors in his monitor room are these sickly shades of yellow and green, but it definitely does make the whole place look a lot more evil. It's Dark Beast. He's 100% doing that for exactly the reason you just described. Well, and his personal grooming certainly contributes. I mean, his long, stringy hair, his enormous bulk, I guess that's less grooming than, you know, body type, and his huge, evil, toothy grin. 
so this issue is drawn by Luke Ross, a fill-in artist for the book, and uh, overall the art is fine. I like the way he draws Dark Beast a lot. Yeah, Dark Beast is menacing. And someone in a couple issues is going to have a much, much more challenging Dark Beast-related job, but Ross does a good job with what he has to work with for now. Now, Dark Beast is not going to be alone for long. He's very quickly going to be joined by Sugar Man, who is, as you may recall, the other time-displaced and universe-displaced refugee from the Age of Apocalypse, as compared to Nate Gray, who's just universe-displaced, not time-displaced. Right, uh, same with Holocaust. Stupid Holocaust. Yeah, he sucks. Sugar Man thinks the Dark Beast has been holding out on him. I mean, they've both been looking into this whole Bishop thing. They're both worried about being found by Sinister. Although I don't know that Sugar Man was necessarily working for Sinister. I don't know, mainly he was just in a terribleness factory in Generation Next. I mean, pretty much everyone was working for Sinister. But I feel like having been working for Sinister isn't a prerequisite for being concerned about being found by him. Entirely reasonable. And so they've been watching Bishop, and I really appreciate this surveillance photo they have of him, which is just a picture of him angrily drinking a can of 7-Up. He, he just fucking hates the Uncola, man. But he has to drink it anyway. It's his duty as a member of the Xavier School Enforcers. Somebody might not have their hall pass, and he needs to have enough blood sugar to deal with it. It's the 90s. Is he, I mean, do you think he's, he's extreme enough for, like, Jolt or possibly Surge? No, no, I think he would look at it disapprovingly. We know he's a teetotaler as far as alcohol, and I think anything with caffeine, it's very similar. Like, he doesn't touch the stuff. He's on duty. All the time. Adam X drinks Surge. I think Adam X's blood is primarily Surge. Remember that one week they fucked, it, they fucked up and put it in the vending machines at school? Oh yeah, people were, were really, really obsessed with that. I, I never liked the stuff. It's, it's really gross. It's absolutely undrinkable. Does that even still exist? I don't know. I, I have not sought it out. I do know they brought back Crystal Pepsi briefly because it exactly corresponded with the convention where T was cosplaying 90s Superboy. Oh, that's perfect. Yeah, we have a bunch of photos of, of her drinking Crystal Pepsi in costume. They brought back Ecto Cooler a while ago, too. That was also not very good. I'm still glad they did, though, because somehow it was less unsettling than the default color of orange icy. That's fair. I think maybe I just don't like really sugary drinks. I don't know. Yeah, I'm pretty much with you there. And and no, I and I, like the whole Mountain Dew Surge family just kind of tastes like chemicals and death to me. I'm pretty sure there's Barbie pee involved. Oh, man. From radioactive Barbies. They were on the site of that explosion that uh, Bruce Banner was at, so it's actually just uh, gamma radiation that turns their pee that color, which is then bottled and turned into Mountain Dew, and that's probably somebody's fetish. Anyway, from one scientific atrocity back to another. Right. So the Dark Beast and the Sugar Man uh, quickly start yelling at each other, and because they're both terrible, violent people, they pull various weapons on each other. There is a delightful panel of them grappling and just holding multiple guns and syringes on each other until they realize this isn't going to go anywhere useful. And Sugar Man says, Want to start over from the top? Let's. They're like a supervillain odd couple. One is neat, one is messy, they're both terribly murderous, and really probably shouldn't have been imported from the Age of Apocalypse. They're both pretty messy. I guess that's true. And that brings us to X-Men number 49, Eyes of a New York Woman. Plotted by Scott Lobdell, with dialogue by Mark Wade, pencils by Jeff Matsuda, inks by Dan Panosian, colors by Kevin Summers, and letters by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. And hey, it's Mark Wade. He's actually going to be the main writer on this book pretty soon, and Jeff Matsuda is going to be the penciler on X Factor pretty soon. Uh huh. We are back in Harry's hideaway where Bishop was having that conversation with Scott and Jean, but this time he is not so much opening the door as blasting a hole in the wall, X Factor style. That's right. There was a server there who was nice to him the last time he was there. His name's Pam Greenwood. And he is convinced that she is spying on him because she was looking at him and paying attention to him. Ironically, he will turn out to be right, but we shouldn't know that quite yet. This scene makes me feel a little weird. It 
it's certain i don't think it's intended to but it really has major like abusive slash paranoid boyfriend vibes with pam trying to calm bishop down and him just continually flying into a rage and accusing her of things oh yeah massively and her like apologizing and trying to be appeasing it's it's really really unsettling even though even 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 with the knowledge that he's ultimately going to be right he does have a new costume though oh yeah it's really rad it's not quite as good as the original one, which is the same as young Gary Coleman's train engineer outfit from that TV show, The Electric Company, but it's still pretty good. It's this sleeveless blue thing with gold armor bits all over and the same kind of vertical stripe that goes from his shoulder down to one of his feet. Thankfully, Bishop at least has a friend here to prevent him from being truly horrifying and awful, and that's Beast. Bishop, cease and desist. We embarked on this nocturnal excursion in order to make conversation with a fragile little barkeep flower, not to watch you mistake flirtation for espionage. Believe me, women pine not for the tall, dark, and psychotic type. Good lord, man, what's wrong with you? I mean, fair enough. Bishop, though, is still freaking out and manages to knock out both Beast and the investigative cop that shows up to see what the noise is all about. And ultimately, Pam decides to take a power-drained and disoriented Bishop back to her apartment, where he wakes up and promptly pulls a gun on her. Before I knew what was going on here, when I thought it was just Bishop being super, super scary to a pretty normal lady, this made me genuinely scared for her. I mean, clearly she's a compassionate person. I mean, until you find out what her real deal is. And she's just trying to help somebody who's super, super dangerous. I don't know, just the real-world parallels really set me on edge. Yeah, the dynamics here are really, really fucked up. Now, as we mentioned, Pam is really a spy, and specifically she is a spy working for Dark Beast, who gives her the order to kill Bishop. Even more specifically, she's Fatal, the same spy we saw working for Dark Beast in that arc of X-Factor, where Havoc was kidnapped after he lost control of his powers. Oh, hey. Dark Beast is watching this whole thing through Fatal's eyes. I don't know, maybe she has eyes similar to the ones that Spiral gave Psylocke way back in the day. Hard to say. And Dark Beast is surprised to find... The other beast, like the one from the world that he is now in. And he freaks out. How could this be? How could this other world, this parallel reality, if you will, have a parallel version of him? Well, it's not just a parallel version of him. It's a parallel version of him who has been accidentally mutated in very similar ways. It's not just that there's another Hank McCoy. It's that there's another Hank McCoy whom he could almost pass as given some minor modifications. Nonetheless, I gotta call bullshit on this. Dark Beast has been in Earth-616 for 20 years, two-thirds of the life of the canonically 30-year-old Hank McCoy of this universe. At one point, there's a brief nod where Sugar Man mentions that he and Dark Beast were babbling idiots for some time when they first crossed over. But come on, Dark Beast's entire deal is curiosity, scientific, and otherwise. And he's got that room that has so many freaking monitors in it! And, like... Beast is literally a celebrity in this world. He's an X-Man, he's an Avenger, he's a public speaker about his research on mutant stuff. Yeah, it's ridiculous that he wouldn't already have, have known that Hank McCoy was out there. So I don't object to Dark Beast being an Earth-616. I, I feel a little iffy about it sometimes as far as whether it's necessary, but I think there's, there's some stories you can tell there. But if you're going to do that... You either don't throw him into the past of Earth-616, if you want him to be surprised by his counterpart, or you, I don't know, say that he just was waiting for the right time or something, but having him be surprised like this just really took me out of the story. Yeah, that's just really silly. Upon this surprising, baffling discovery, Dark Beast has Fatal abort the mission, uh, which she does uh, somewhat excessively. She accidentally shoots a gas main while she's escaping and seems to blow herself up. Whoops. Bishop does at least manage to save her cat. Yeah, because Pam Greenwood, her waitress identity, who we find out was specifically created to be Bishop's ideal woman, had a cat. His ideal woman has a cat, and I guess now he does. Unless the cat is also a spy and assassin. Probably is. God damn it, Dark Beast. I mean, most cats are. And Bishop... You know, Bishop, for his part, feels vindicated. Like I kept saying, 
Every instinct told me that there was something malevolent behind those eyes. Okay, he was right, but he was still an asshole. You're not wrong, Walter. You're just an asshole. Yeah, but I'm gonna go ahead and say maybe kinda worse. That's the thing. I mean, I don't think Bishop has really been associated with much in the way of toxic masculinity. Like, he can be evil, but it's seldom portrayed in that specific way. But boy howdy, he is just stepping right into those shoes in this story. Look, Miles, this is what you get when you find a stranger in the Alps. Good point. Meanwhile, on the Massachusetts Academy lawn, you know, the school that Generation X goes to, and weirdly not in the comic book called Generation X, Gateway suddenly teleports Chamber away. And on the way out, Monet is able to psychically glean a single word from Gateway's head, and that word, unsurprisingly, is... Onslaught. He's everywhere. Yeah, this part doesn't really go anywhere. I mean... I guess Onslaught does have this tendency to have telepaths or people with psionic powers be important to his plot or lack thereof, and Chamber does have psionic powers, but Chamber getting pulled away by Gateway, I don't think that's really followed up on. I think he just, like, gets returned at some point. It's been a while since I read Onslaught, and my brain may have erased some of the dumb. Maybe Gateway just sort of stows him away for the duration of the event. Figures he's suffered enough. Maybe. So, uh, you may recall, Jay, the Norse-themed D&D game we played, I played a plane shifter type of wizard, and I had a spell called Sequester, and, uh, listeners, we decided that when I used this spell, which would basically take an enemy off the battlefield for a turn, I was just basically teleporting them to a cool rec room kind of place where there was, like, a beanbag chair, and an Xbox, and a soda fridge, and some pizza, and that just sounded nicer the more and more I used that spell. I just I just wanted to hang out there in real life. Just a little escape from the world. Just for one round of combat. The other meaning of escape room. Oh yeah, true. I miss escape rooms. Are you a fan of escape rooms? I don't think you are, right? I'm not a fan of real life ones. I've done a couple of digital ones since uh, since lockdown. I've only done one in real life. Uh, it was sort of themed after Saw, which is totally not my jam, the whole torture porn thing. But it was just so fun. It was spooky, and we had to work together, and there were creepy little clues that made sense after a while, and we barely made it out in time, and it was great. I like those aspects. I am not a fan of the being locked in a physical space. Entirely reasonable, yeah. Like, my imagination is powerful enough. I don't actually need to be fucking stuck somewhere. <laughs> entirely reasonable and to be honest over the last year there's been enough being stuck places to probably last us all for a while oh yeah i'm sorry people who run escape rooms you might get less business coming up although i guess a little more business than you've gotten over the last year anyway that brings us to x-men unlimited number 10 need to know this is written by mark wade penciled by frank toscano and nick nazo inked by art to bear colored by matt webb and lettered by richard starkings and comicraft so I don't know which artist is which, because I'm not really familiar with either Toscano or Nazo, but one of them does a really good job of drawing these relatively realistic characters with extra expressive faces and body language, which is a combination I find myself loving. And they have to because of where this issue goes. So a lot of this story is in flashback form. It's following Dark Beast as he puts together sort of a biography of Hank McCoy 616 via interviews with Hank's friends and family. So an elementary school principal, a high school girlfriend, a priest, and finally Hank's parents. Dark Beast is, of course, posing as 616 Beast during this, in part because he is continually modifying his genes using science stuff to look more like our Bouncing Blue Beast. His goal, as becomes more and more obvious over the course of the issue, is to single white female 616 Hank. Maybe you should explain that reference for people like me who aren't familiar. He's gonna take his place. Oh, okay. But that's not all he does in this research. Holy crap, this issue is dark. Yeah, with the exception of Hank's parents, whom he can't quite bring himself to kill, Dark Beast really messily murders every single witness he speaks to. Yeah, like, he goes and finds his old high school principal, or, like, the other him's old high school principal, and smothers him with a pillow, which, well, that's not great, but then you find out that he just tore apart literally everybody in the nursing home where this guy was. Uh, he starts a minor epidemic of an instantly deadly virus to get rid of the high school girlfriend. And he just straight up blows up the church and gleefully speeds away in an SUV after doing this confession thing with the priest. 
Holy crap, Dark Beast! And he's so frustrated with himself for not being able to kill Hank's parents that he beheads a random stranger. Yeah, yeah, just this dude is walking his dog. Hank just sticks an axe out the window of, of his vehicle and... And that's that. I do really like in that part, though, that we see the top of this victim's head in one panel and the bottom right below in the in the next panel. It's a good way of showing someone's head being bisected without actually showing their head being bisected. Yeah, I was going to say that would be a little gratuitous, but by its nature, pretty much everything Dark Beast does here is a little gratuitous. Okay, I want to talk about that. I want to really dig into that, in fact. But first, I want to talk about Hank's parents' place. Because when Dark Beast goes to visit, disguised as normal Beast, we see that, for instance, their son has helped them genetically engineer their crops so that they have, like, giant ears of corn and giant tomatoes and stuff, and that's cool. But what's really cool is the breakfast machine thing that Beast gave his parents for their kitchen. It's this enormous, impractical conveyor belt monstrosity where they, like, put a bunch of different breakfast foods into this hopper, and, like, there are these little robot arms that that chop up bacon and flip over eggs on this conveyor belt. It reminds me so much of the breakfast Rube Goldberg machines from both Edward Scissorhands and Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Yeah, I was I was going to say in general it's it's very much like if if Rube Goldberg had had embraced the agrarian life. Oh yeah. Rube Goldberg, if you're uh, listening to this, which I'm pretty sure you're not because I think you may have died, uh you should make some cool stuff for farms that is impractical. So anyway, he's been going around, he's been collecting data on the 616 Hank McCoy's past and the picture we get via this is a smart, enthusiastic kid who's way, way more interested in understanding the world and everything in it than his peers or dating or anything related to that stuff. Um, he's He doesn't really connect to his classmates. His teachers are baffled and frustrated by him because he does stuff like sneak out to take apart school bus engines in the middle of the day because he wants to know how they work. He wants to know why. And this is certainly a quality of Hank McCoy we've seen before. I think it's emphasized in this issue significantly more than it ever has been. But, you know, I I buy that. That does kind of seem like his style. This issue is pretty tight thematically in terms of that curiosity being the defining trait for either Hank McCoy. And one of the things that it really pushes is that Dark Beast is essentially a serial killer because he's so curious about how people will react to, I don't know, being serial killed in various ways, I guess. And I don't know, do we do we buy that? Because, like, I can see the curiosity being a thing, but I don't know that he's really gathering that much data from just doing a whole lot of murders. I don't think he is. I think that he is curious, but he's also gratuitously cruel. And in his research, he uses the curiosity to justify the cruelness, but that doesn't make him any less so when he's not nominally doing it for research purposes. Do you think that's consistent with Dark Beast as portrayed in the Age of Apocalypse? Yeah, assuming that we've got a Dark Beast who's lost his lab and much of his resources, but has had the freedom to act in relative secrecy, and hasn't had the requirement of even vague socialization that he did in the Age of Apocalypse, I'll buy it. Oh, that's a really good point. Like, the idea that outside of the context in which he grew up, he just doesn't give a shit about consequences. Right. Well, there aren't any for him. Pretty much, yeah. We do get a bit of a walk back, too. Like, the last issue I was complaining about how Dark Beast was surprised at finding out that his 616 counterpart was so similar to him. In this, the issue basically says that he already knew Beast was around, he just was really busy with other stuff and so didn't look into it until the situation became more relevant. I'm not saying it's a great explanation, but kind of like the way they walked back Mystique's lack of familiarity with the adversary in the X-Factor arc we just covered, at least it's a nod to the fact that there was a thing that didn't make sense. At least it tries to justify something that was infuriating before. Meanwhile, actual Hank, or main 616 Hank, is doing his best to wrap his brain and a good deal of his body around the mystery of the legacy virus. He's done this by basically setting up the danger room as a giant electron microscope or at least a simulation showing you know what he's been he's been able to put together of the virus's genetic structure which he's literally wrestling oh it's so great i know i know in real life molecules are not just colored balls connected by colored sticks the way they are in diagrams any more than that model of the atom with the orbiting electrons is is literal 
But I love that Beast creates that, and he's just pulling the different molecules apart and putting them back together and swinging around on them. It it just perfectly brings together those two sides of Beast's personality, and it's delightful. It also really sums up the way he's been kind of pushing through lately, because he's extremely, extremely overworked and extremely hyper-focused on the legacy virus. And he's getting away by basically projecting this, this kind of manic, rictus glee and the state of being always okay and just fine and just doing his thing, which a lot of his teammates see through, in particular Professor X and Iceman, who's his best friend. Iceman tries to talk to Beast at Xavier's direction. Beast bristles a little about the whole thing. You don't have to be so protective. Sure I do. You're Curious Hank. I'm the man in the yellow hat. That's our relationship. Aww. Aww. I love this, I know. I, I kind of question it, though, like... I mean, okay, yes, they're best friends. That should always be a thing. Writers should never, ever forget that. But it kind of seems like Beast was the more rational one trying to shepherd Bobby through actually functioning in life in the past. Mm, yes and no. When Bobby makes bad choices, at least in, in casual situations, they tend to be like casual bad choices. When Hank makes bad choices, they tend to be like blow up three city blocks bad choices. Do you remember that uh, one instance where he broke the very concept of time a few years back? I was thinking of precisely that. God damn it, Hank. I'm actually really enjoying the way Beast is being written these days in X-Force. Like, it that book just completely pulls from this era, in fact, the idea that Beast cares so much about making the world a better place that the specifics to his methods just matter less and less and less to him. Oh yeah, the road specifically from 616 Hank McCoy to Dark Beast is very, very clear. And I think that's one of the reasons that of the four imports from the Age of Apocalypse, where the four, well, the four main imports, there are technically more, especially later, but Dark Beast is the one that I think serves the overall story of the X-Men far better than certainly Holocaust or Sugar Man or arguably Nate Gray. Right, now... Hank, at this point, is determined to keep working, so he tricks Bobby into leaving the lab and locks him out, which means that Hank is in the right place when Dark Beast hacks into his computer and lures him to the Brand Corporation. Oh, the Brand Corporation. That's right. If you remember much about Hank McCoy's history, you remember that the Brand Corporation is where he initially drank the serum that turned him into the furry version of the Beast. Exactly. Now, once he's there, Dark Beast taunts Hank into a bestial rage, but he's able to calm him down. He's able to keep Hank from killing him with the single greatest threat, the one that he knows will break through absolutely anything to get to Hank, and that is, if Hank kills Dark Beast, he's never going to unravel the mystery. He's never going to learn his secrets. He's never going to find out where he comes from. And I think that's the masterstroke of this issue. I have mixed feelings about this issue simply because the violence seems gratuitous in places, and I'm sort of sensitive to stuff like that. But it just ties together so beautifully. The idea that curiosity is Hank's biggest strength and his biggest weakness in any universe. Yeah, absolutely. Right? And Dark Beast has spent so much time learning about Hank, and that's what he comes to, just realizing, oh, this version of me is as curious about the world as I am. I can use that for evil. And he does, and then literally walls Hank up Edgar Allan Poe style and cavorts off to take his place in the X-Men. Yeah, yeah, he just chains him to a wall with vibranium chains that he has from, I don't know, maybe Ulysses Claw or something, and then bricks him into uh, the fake wall of the Brand Corporation. Like, Beast is just going to be hanging out in the dark behind some bricks for freaking six months of comics. At least we'll have some really good sherry. I didn't see any sherry in that panel. I'm going to assume the artist just forgot and there actually is the Amontillado sherry, because otherwise I'll be sad. And so will Hank McCoy. Poor, poor Hank McCoy. His decisions are bad, and so is his life. Like Havoc, but more science-y. So that brings us to your questions. 
Scarlet Sasquatch asks on Tumblr, Do you have any advice for enjoying a good comic related to a story you personally hate? Also, have you ever hated a story everyone else loves? Um, so, I I can't think of a specific story, but I will say I'm not a Jim Lee fan at all. Like, I, I will hear quote, um, quote Jeff from Community and say, kind of like Paul Rudd, I get the appeal, and I wouldn't take him away from anyone, but I also probably wouldn't stand in line for him. Legit. Which actually is also kind of how I feel about Paul Rudd. Although, eh, I don't know, I enjoy him. But anyway, the trick, I think, is to think of the story as as a vehicle, as a way to get somewhere, but also to take a step back and enjoy the difference. Because one of the things that being invested in the story does, or can do, is blur out other aspects of the comic you're reading. If you're having trouble with, an, with immersion in an arc, what I recommend is really letting yourself get immersed in the craftsmanship of it, in how it works, in the storytelling, or in finding things that you would have otherwise overlooked within the narrative. That's something I've really enjoyed about doing the podcast. Even when we're going through comics we don't like because we're focusing so closely on them as we prepare for episodes, there's always cool stuff to find. Like, always. What about you? Are there stories that that you've hated that everyone else seems to love? Well, I don't know about that, because honestly, there aren't that many stories that I hate. Like, I hated the third X-Men movie, but so does almost everybody. I will say, though, that there are some stories that are less liked in general that I found good things within. The first place my brain went there was actually in Grant Morrison's run. It's the whole thing with Zorn. During the first part of Morrison's run, before um, there's that big reveal about Zorn's true nature, I loved that character. He's Magneto. He's Magneto. Well, sort of. It gets weird. Anyway, I loved Zorn so much. I had so much uh, just affection for this character. He was so kind to people. He was so interesting. And then it turned out he was a drugged-out, shitty version of one of my favorite villains. And so I just try to remember that, like, even though it was later revealed that the story elements that I enjoyed were a lie, like, they're still fun stories. They're still enjoyable. I can still like the person that Magneto was pretending to be, and that it later turned out also did kind of exist. It gets so complicated. I can still not explain exactly what Zorn and Magneto pretending to be Zorn was. You know, come to think of it, speaking of, of iconic runs... I, I feel like this is going to get me so much shit for saying this. I'm not a huge fan of, of Powers of Ten and House of X. I get why they're good, but they're just, they're not a type of story that grabs me. They're sort of whatever the non-funny equivalent of a brick joke is. I'm That that sounds mean, and I, I don't mean it meanly, but they're, they're stories for which the point is the intricate construction. Um, it's just something Jonathan Hickman does a lot, which is something that I very much appreciate, but don't particularly enjoy. That makes a lot of sense, yeah. So again, that's a place where, for me, like, they're not they're not stories I was super into, but I really enjoyed reading them because I really, really dig the craftsmanship that goes into building that kind of narrative. Yeah. I mean, I certainly, I love House of X and Powers of Ten myself, but the way you're describing that totally makes sense. Let's talk about a specific story here, though, because I was kind of zeroing in on the enjoying a good comic related to a story you personally hate. So... I hate the Terrigen Cloud X-Men versus Inhumans concept. I think it's a dumb concept. It was clearly based on Marvel trying to make Inhumans the new thing because they didn't have the X-Men film rights, and I was not a fan. Stop trying to make Fetch happen. <laughs> Basically. And, you know, to their credit, eventually they did when they got the film rights for X-Men, and the Inhumans show flopped. But... Death of X, the miniseries, which is central to that entire X-Men and Humans conflict, is freaking phenomenal. It's one of the best X-Men stories of that era. It's a great character piece. It's a great mystery. It's just lovely. And it's part of an event that, overall, I hated the premise of. Yeah, likewise. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, Thinking about the weirdness of the sliding timescale and Marvel's strange fear of allowing characters to be older than 40... I've been trying to figure out how many generations of teen X-Men have there been? Oh, anonymous listener. I both love and hate this question. Mostly, I think I love it. Now, this isn't the full original question. The original question involved a qualification that I left out. Um, 
here because it, it makes the question unanswerable, which was that that to qualify a group had to come in as teenagers and then grow up, which you can't really have as a caveat for that question because it doesn't happen consistently. The sliding time scale isn't consistent. Some characters grow age faster than others. So for this, for purposes here, we're just counting the series of, of teams, of groups of teenagers who've come in as teenagers. Okay, but even so, it gets really ambiguous. First, it's pretty simple because you just have different teen X-Men teams. And then, as soon as the Xavier School starts accepting more students, you have all these different overlapping classes. But I'm going to do my best. So to start, we have the Silver Age Original 5 X-Men. Very straightforward, very easy. Whether or not you want to count Tessa there is your call, but still, easy. All right. So from there, you've got the New Mutants. Yeah, New Mutants, definitely them. And I would classify the Exterminators sort of side-by-side with the New Mutants. A lot of the Exterminators joined the New Mutants later, and then X-Force. So different teams, but same generation. And the Exterminators were only a team briefly anyway. Right, okay. So that's, that's, that's the second generation. Third generation is Generation X. Absolutely. After this is when things get dicey. Now, we talked about more kids coming to the Xavier School. A lot of that happened in Grant Morrison's run. There were just so many new young characters. The thing is, they weren't a team. They were just students, straight up. So I don't know that I would count them as their own generation, especially since many of them will factor into some of the subsequent generations we're going to be mentioning. Does that make sense to you? I would lump those in with what you have listed as the next generation, which is the new X-Men Academy X kids. Because there's a lot of overlap, and they're generally written as being roughly the same age. I guess that's true. I mean, New X-Men Academy X, and previously before it, New Mutants Volume 2, came out a few years after Morrison's run, but only a few years. So I think we could say that's similar. Uh, The Hellions, of course, were around that era as well, as were the various other squads of mutants, many of whom died shortly after because Kyle and Yost sure do love killing characters. So yeah, let's call that collectively Generation 4. In with that generation, we could also throw the Young X-Men. That was a short-lived, I believe, 12-issue series written by Mark Guggenheim. It turned out, though, that they were actually being manipulated by the Reavers who made, like, a fake Cyclops. And oh then no, most he of those was just characters... straight up Donald Pierce. Okay, was that it? I thought there was a fake Cyclops. It's been a uh, while. No, Pierce was pretending to be Cyclops. Oh. And Cyclops was pretending to be Eric the Red, probably. No. Well, anyway, they're with Generation 4 as well. After this, it continues to get dicey because there's a lot of overlap. I think for Generation 5, let's say that Hope Summer's Five Lights, the students of the Jean Grey School, and Cyclops' students from his Revolutionary Era, and the time-displaced Original 5, I think we can kind of throw them all in together. Like, around the time and a little bit before Brian Bendis took over the line. Those characters should theoretically roughly be the same age and generation. See, I would place the Generation Hope kids between the previous generation in this one. Because they're, I guess, I guess they're not all a little bit older, but most of them are a little bit older. That would be reasonable as well. Again, I don't think there's the right answer here. But after that, let's say the next generation is the second incarnation of Generation X, the one that Jubilee was mentoring. Ooh, I disagree with that because those were Jean Grey school students. Only some of them. There were some new kids, but you're right. Enough were that they might count. And I mean, shit, Quentin was there, as I recall, and he's back from Morrison's era. Again, they're part of the same age group. And right, see, for example, the, the eternal adolescence of Quentin Choir is why we can't <laughs> track it the way um, you originally requested, anonymous listener. That that leaves the current generation. So these are the kids on Krakoa. Yeah, and I do think we can have them be a dependent, in part because... Most of them are relatively young, like I'm thinking of the kids in Vita Ayala's current run of New Mutants, primarily. Mm-hmm. They're being mentored by previous teen teams, members of Gen X and New Mutants and such. And also because the paradigm in which they live is so drastically different from any of the previous generations. They are, I think, more of an independent generation than any of the previous ones are from one another. I think you're absolutely right. So, there is our official unofficial, only kind of makes sense, completely subjective answer where we don't even fully agree with each other. You're welcome. Please never ask us to repeat it from memory. Oh, geez. We'll just play back the episode and say we said it again. It's fine. 
We're a fully listener-supported podcast, and certain levels of support from the various generations of our listeners, ambiguously defined, come with acknowledgement from fictional characters and concepts on air. Let's see what the Angry Claremontian narrator, creator of at least the first couple of those generations, angrily, has to say. You've taken so many precautions, Yotam Bernaz. Tied up so many loose ends, accounted for so many variables. You've got more plans than letters of the alphabet, each more foolhardy than the last. But there's one wild card for which you can never account enough. The wrench in your gears, the fly in your ointment. That's right. Cyclause is here. And nothing is ever going to go right again. And the mic from here passes to Sexy Rogue. I'll never understand that swamp rat Remy's timing. He'll be smoother than a boomer's bald spot one minute, getting me all hot and bothered, and then, boom! Kinetic explosion! Bob Cairns, you know better than that. When you're with that special so-and-so, getting the both of you as excited as spiders in the fly factory, do you turn around and blow up the nearest piece of antique furniture? No, you do not! And Christopher McKenzie... You was raised, right? Why, when you're in an intimate situation with some fine specimen, you manage that mood and progression as carefully as a Harley rider in a souffle kitchen. You don't detonate the duvet? I tell ya, that Cajun could learn a thing or two from both of y'all. Or three. Or ten. And I have some bedroom furniture to replace, gall darn it. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay in the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, it's Hawk Talk, but we'll be back in two as Nate Gray meets Excalibur. And promptly ruins everything. Scarlet Sasquatch acts... Blech. Scarlet's... Why can't I say that? Scarlet, Scarlet, fuck! Scarlet Sasquatch. Scarlet Sasquatch. Okay. Damn it. Scarlet Sasquatch acts... Fuck. <laughs> okay, I got this. I'm a professional, somehow. Go slow. Scarlet Sasquatch asks on Tumblr, 